You are listening to Behind the Trials, an interview with Andrew Nunn, part one of two. This is an MRC Clinical Trials Unit production. Welcome to Behind the Trials, where we delve into careers and work of staff working in the unit. My name is Siam. I'm a research fellow and statistician based here at the unit. And today I'm speaking to Professor Andrew Nunn, senior scientist and professor of epidemiology here at the unit. Andrew is the co-chief investigator of the STREAM clinical trial, which is assessing short innovative treatment regimens for patients with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. Today, we hope to get an insight into Andrew's career to date, particularly studies that he's worked on earlier on and draw on some aspects of the medical research that he has been involved in. So Andrew, people don't necessarily associate maths or statistics to medicine. And so I'm quite intrigued as to how you came across uh, medical research as a, as a career choice. Well, it was quite an interesting story in the sense that I didn't, um, I was not, wasn't aware of it at all myself. When I look back to when I was completing my master's in statistics at Sussex, um, I had already applied for jobs and uh, didn't have any idea that there were possibilities of working in medical research. But the careers office at the university asked me to go and see them uh, to just to say what I was planning to do. Um, and they said, had I considered doing medical research? And I said, no, I didn't even know there was any possibility of, math, of using that, my degree to that end. And they said, well, you really ought to go and meet somebody who could tell you more about this. And they suggested Richard Doll. Now, as you probably know, Richard Doll is very famous for the work that he's yeah. done on relating to smoking and lung cancer. And so I went up to the unit in London. That was basically what is now the MRC Biostatistics Unit, mm. which is based in Cambridge now. But he told me about the work that he'd been doing. And that fired me up in a way because that was I found, well, yes, if that's a possibility, that would be sounds much more interesting than what I had in mind. So I straight away I applied to the MRC. Applied for a job in his unit, which I didn't get, but a, a job came up in the TB unit, which I did get, and well, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, could you briefly summarise um, your career from, I guess, from time from university up until now, in the best way you can? Okay, a rapid run through. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think I've I have told you already about the fact that how I came to work for the MRC. Um, uh, in fact, I was interviewed by Wallace Fox and Denny Mitchison, who were two of the really two of the real lead researchers um, in TB, and I think that's they've been recognised internationally for that work. So I was very privileged to join what was called in those days the Tuberculosis Research Unit, but it changed into the Tuberculosis and Chest Diseases Unit, um, and. Soon after I joined, we moved to new premises at the Brompton Hospital in South Kensington. Brompton Hospital had a long history of being involved in TB work in the past. But we, we were also involved, while we were doing clinical trials in TB, uh, trials in some other respiratory diseases, such as asthma and fibrosing alveolitis. During that period, it was a 20-year period from 1966 through to 1986, uh, we conducted the trials which 
actually demonstrated that it was possible to treat patients for a much shorter period of time than standard treatment had been up until that point. This was really because of the advent of a new drug, rifampicin, and it made it possible to reduce the length of total length of treatment from 18 months down to six months. And this changed treatment all over the world as a consequence of those trials. Most of them were done in East Africa or in Hong Kong. Some we, uh, we did some in additionally in Singapore. When 1986 came, the uh, director of the unit, Wallace Fox, retired because he'd reached retirement age and that was a statutory requirement that he had to step down. And the MRC, in its wisdom, decided to close the TB unit. They said it felt, well, haven't we really solved the problem? Not TB had gone all away, but we've, we've now got a, a shorter, highly effective treatment if, if it's taken. One thing they did not know was at that stage was the strong relationship between TB and HIV. HIV was just beginning to emerge in the, early, in the early 1980s. But nobody realized that in fact that it was actually going to cause an explosion of TB, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Anyway, and none of us knew that at that stage. But what did happen was that those of us who'd been working in the TB unit, four of us on the scientific staff, asked if we could stay together for a while in order to be able to, get, to continue to use our expertise in clinical trials. And the MRC agreed to that for a period of about three years in the first instance. And during that time, well, very early on, we had the, the opportunity to take on responsibility for running the Concord trial. Now, the first drug which was effective against AC, uh, um, HIV became available in the early 1980s. And in fact, it had been shown to actually to delay uh, the onset of AIDS and death in patients who received it in a placebo-controlled trial. Mm. And the next question from that was really, well, if that's the case, is it possible, in fact, that we could um, give it to people who are asymptomatic, who, who won't even get any symptoms at all and, uh, if, if we give them AZT? Um, the answer to that, to that story proved to be that this, a single drug was not going to be effective in that respect. But, but this scientific group that I was part of at that stage took on the running of that trial. And this was back in nine, what was then 1987, 1988 it started. But not long after the trial had started, I had the opportunity to go and work in Uganda, where the MRC had a unit set up to, uh, to uh, research the dynamics of the HIV infection in an African population. And really, I leapt at that chance because it was something I'd always wanted to do, work in a developing country. And so for the next six years, I worked with the Uganda unit. And it was a great privilege, and uh, we had some very exciting and interesting um, studies came out of that. And uh, what was it like working in Uganda? What kind of things were you involved with there? Well, the most interesting finding, really, at the end of the day, well, there were a number of interesting findings, was that there had been lots of theories about how HIV was being spread. Um, some thought it was, well, blood transfusion was an obvious possibility because contaminated blood being uh, transfused from one person to another. But Uganda was such a poor country at those, day, those days, very, very few people got access to blood transfusion. So that, was, that meant that wasn't a risk factor. There were other concerns as well, such as um, circumcision and scarification were two possibilities. But 
we showed, in fact, that really it was pretty well, very close to 100% the transmission was, was sexual, really basically between a man and a woman and, and, and in fact a mother-to-child transmission when a, when a mother had a baby. The second really important finding was in fact demonstrating the high attributable mortality of, of HIV, HIV um, in that population. We, the population in which we were working had an 8% prevalence amongst the adults of HIV. Relatively low compared to some places in Africa. But the interesting thing is, in that adult population, nearly half of the deaths actually were in patients, uh, in people who were HIV infected. So that, that made very clear beyond all doubt, really, that HIV was responsible for, had a very big mortality in this sort of setting. Something which, in fact, there were people going about who were saying, giving a very different message and sort of saying that HIV and AIDS were not really connected and, and in fact, it was a misnomer. And indeed, as a consequence of that, countries like South Africa, for example, totally ignored the, the link between HIV and, and AIDS. And in fact, for many years, while the epidemic just got so much worse in South Africa, they did really very, very little about it. In 1995, uh, after having been there six years, I returned to the UK uh, to what had then become the HIV Clinical Trials Centre, which had evolved from that group that I was in before I went out to Uganda. And from 95 to 98, I was involved in some further some HIV work. Mm -hmm. And then in 1998 was when the Clinical Trials Unit was formed, which in fact uh, I became part of, and well, it's been going now for 20 years. Yeah, I understand when you came back to the UK, you had, uh, when the CTU was formed, you headed up a, a division. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, um, basically when the MRC decided to have a clinical trials unit, they had three divisions because it was a bringing together of the HIV work, cancer work from a group in Cambridge to form a unit, but they felt it was important to do more than just cancer and HIV and they were very much aware that some areas of medicine are really quite neglected in terms of having not, a, not having a good history of doing clinical trials as an evidence base for whatever is recommended and, and dispensed, but, but recognising the need to, to, to develop trials in these particular areas. So I was responsible for what was called the Division Without Portfolio. It's a great name. I changed it later on to the to other diseases, which I thought was much less exciting. But I much preferred DWP. And what happened was a number of people came from a number of disciplines and saying, "Look, we recognise that there's a real gap in our in of evidence for the treatments that we're using in in the area of we're working, and the areas that in question were areas such as transfusion medicine, uh, dermatology." musculoskeletal medicine, that is rheumatism and, and arthralgia, uh, and indeed some areas of respiratory medicine as well. Now, for some of them, they wanted to set up their own trial centre straight away, but what we suggested it would be a better plan would be if they employed a, or paid, provided the money for a full-time senior statistician to work with me, we could then, working with their consultants, develop trials in their particular area, having all the advantages of being part of a large clinical trial centre, which in fact would obviously be able to provide the expertise 
and and help to train the statistician and indeed help to train also the clinicians outside who were sort of helping to lead these studies. And that model seemed to work very well, actually. Was it at this um, point in time when you were involved with microbicide trials as well? Yes, it was. This um, microbicides were in fact a a way in which women could be empowered to, well, less, this was the plan, uh, women could be empowered to, to protect themselves against HIV infection. Obviously, one way a woman could be protected against HIV infection would be if the man she was having sex with were a condom. But sadly, of course, many men would, would refuse to do that. And so we were looking for a way in which the women could actually take some form of gel or some form of tablet, which would actually, in fact, prevent her to be infected, prevent infection occurring. Um, and so we did a number of studies. Most of them actually were fairly early phase studies, looking at the safety of a product prior to moving into phase three. And then we did a very large study of, well, a pretty big study of about 9,000 women, which was called MDP301, which was looking at two doses of a particular product to see, in fact, whether in fact it did protect against HIV. you were involved with some trials in asthma as well and there was some challenges associated with that and, and, and towards the end of it um, it was interesting with, with, with the way it was controlled in terms of the placebo. Sure. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes, we did a number of asthma trials when we were based at the Brompton Hospital um, and one of, them, one of the earliest ones was a very interesting study where we were looking at the effect of giving oral, giving inhaled steroids rather than uh, steroids in a tablet form. Because of course steroids are something that you want to avoid if possible because the side effects from steroids are not great. And if you can give a lower dose which goes straight into the lungs, that would be far better. And that, that trial was very successful. One of the, but one of the challenges of doing an asthma trial is that you want to obviously measure the symptoms that the patients are having day by day. Mm -hmm. um, and so we used to give patients diary cards to fill in, which they would have to bring back at the end of a month uh, when they had their scheduled appointment. Problem was, quite a number of these patients would come back with diary cards that looked pristine clean, as though in fact they had hardly been out taken out of the envelope and all, all filled in with little very neat ticks uh, all with the same pen and so on it was pretty obvious they'd either done it on the bus coming in or in oh. fact they'd done it the night before at home so that was really challenging in terms of actually saying well you know how how can we rely on these data mm. um, one very interesting study we did which was a drug called bromocryptine now this drug had been found to be or appeared to be very effective for patients who had very severe asthma, who also had um, par had um, Parkinson's disease. And somebody observed this, uh, the fact that it wasn't originally being given for the Parkinson's disease, but, but they did see that, they, that their asthma got much better. So 
The doctor at the Brompton Hospital said, oh, well, in that case, we should, we should give it to the patients here. So what yeah. they did was they took a, about 10 patients and gave it to them, and their symptoms seemed to be getting better. But other people said, well, that's all very well, but, you know, it, then we, we should really do a randomised controlled trial yeah. with a placebo rather than just give the bromocryptine. So we set up a randomised placebo-controlled trial, identified these patients with very severe asthma and started to treat them. Um, and the disappointing thing was that at the end of the day we found absolutely no difference in those who'd had placebo or had the active drug. And there's a very interesting little story about one of the patients who um, he reached the end of a year, which was the length of the study, and we went to see his consultant to tell the consultant about how he got on because we broke the code at the end of one year's treatment. And we said, well, actually, this particular patient who's done remarkably well has been on placebo all the time. And so the doctor felt he would then need for the next few months to, to very gradually wean the patient off the placebo. <laughs> so it does demonstrate how really vitally important it is to do clinical randomized trials because, in fact, you know, so often people do uncontrolled studies which yes. look promising and it can happen in any disease but asthma I think is one which is a particular problem but not just asthma and they get in what looks like good results uh, and then go ahead and start treating on the basis of it when in fact it's never been really properly established in, or compared in a, in a randomised setting. Sure. And so you've worked in TB for many years and switched um, to a different field like such as HIV and other areas. Um, when you did return to the UK, how, how, were you pleased to re recommence work in, in tuberculosis? Yes, I really was. I mean, I was very fortunate in the sense that um, a, a doctor who was setting up a network of trial centres, recognising the fact that there might be new drugs coming along, and incidentally, TB had a terribly long time of about 50 years without any new drugs at all. But at the turn of the century, in fact, uh, there was the promise of new drugs to be developed. Uh, and clearly, if there were going to be new drugs, and indeed, the, if you remember, the TB um, unit, the MRC's unit, had been closed down. So really, there's a whole period when very little was being done in the area of TB. Mm. And um, she proposed a study, this doctor proposed a study, um, to actually assess one of the WHO recommended regimens against the what was the gold standard regimen in those days, and she asked me if I would take on if I would be responsible for the data management and the, and the statistics for that study, and I was very pleased to be able to do that. And incidentally, that was a study which showed that the, the this alternative recommendation from WHO, which had been based on rather limited data, actually was clearly inferior to the gold standard treatment, the, the six-month-based regimen of isoniazid, based on an isoniazid and rifampicin. Uh, so once again, in fact, it showed that, you know, you've got to have good evidence before you actually make a recommendation. But following on from that trial, another, uh, one or two other trials came beyond that, and since then the whole area of TB has really uh, expanded quite a lot within the unit and it's really exciting to see how much is going on at the present time. Yes, and currently at the moment you are co-chief investigator of the STREAM clinical trial. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about 
how Stream is um, undergoing at the moment? Yes, Stream, or the, where it all began was, it's going back to uncontrolled data in the first place. It, um, it started off in Bangladesh when in fact a, a microbiologist who also treated patients, uh, who was based, was working in Bangladesh, um, was eager to try to find a, a better treat way of treating patients with multi-drug resistant TB. That is resistance to isoniazid and rifampicin, the two main drugs which we use to treat the disease. Currently, the recommendation from WHO had been that such patients had to be treated for about up to two years with some pretty toxic drugs. So he looked to take this no new drugs, but the drugs that were currently available, and see whether there was a better way of combining them, and indeed possibly reducing the total duration. And he looked at all, he looked at successive cohorts of patients where he tweaked them by dropping a drug here, adding a drug there, reducing the duration, changing things one way and another. And the last of those cohorts, which had just over 200 patients in it, had really remarkably good results compared to what was being experienced in other places. Over 85% of patients were getting a good response, a long-term good response. Now, the, response, the reaction to that from the community at large, from some people who sort of said, well, everybody should be doing that, you know, straight away. Why? This is what everybody should be receiving. There were other people who were much more sceptical and sort of said, well, there, they may be, the patients may well have been selected uh, they were from Bangladesh, there wouldn't have been anybody infected with HIV. I think it's really not, not very helpful. We, we, need to do, we need a trial to actually answer this question. USAID put up money for trials to be done, and the International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Disease, otherwise just known as the Union, actually won the, the funding award for that and um, proposed a trial which in fact turned out to be rather more expensive than was possible with the funds available. So then they came to me and sort of said, well, is there any other way we could do this? Could we do a series of cohorts in different countries? And we did talk about that. And we, in fact, we even got so far as to sort of planning just how many, we would have four cohorts of 100 patients in four different countries. I was uncomfortable with it in the sense of feeling, well, it's not really the answer we want. And although the original randomized trial could not be done, it did come up with an alternative randomized design, which was a non-inferiority study. And on the basis of that, we started the, the STREAM trial back in 2012, quite a while ago now. Um, the first stage of that was simply to say in a randomized setting, is this nine-month shorter regimen as good as the 24-month regimen which people are routinely being recommended to, to use by WHO. And we had the preliminary results from that study back in October 2017, last year, uh, and this year we are presenting at the conference, the Union Conference the final results of the study which we now have available. That's of stage one of the study incidentally. And what's happening in stage two at the moment? What are you looking at in stage two of the well, clinical trial? When it was clear that stage one was going very well, and incidentally, one of the things that we were very pleased about was in fact that in what was a difficult group of patients, the retention in other words, of the patients and others were retaining the patients, not just through treatment, but also through a long period of follow-up, was, was very successful. We, we, did, we lost very few patients. When that was apparent, 
USAID, the main funder of Stage 1, came to us and said, look, if we provided you additional money, would you be able to actually introduce any further regimens to the two to the two you have in the comparison already, that is the, the nine-month and the 24-month regimen? We said, yes, that's certainly possible, providing you're making concurrent comparisons, not just a historical mm-hmm. comparison. And so we discussed what was the best... What, were the, what was the burning question? Which is the question everybody would like to answer most of all? And the majority of people felt it would be really good to get rid of the injectable drug. One of the drugs that was part of the regimen, and when you're treating TB, you don't just use one drug, you use multiple drugs, and indeed the stream regimen had seven drugs in it. And one of those was an injectable And logistically, it's a nuisance to have to give injections on a daily basis for four months. But on top of that, there were serious problems about side effects, concerns about patients who could become deaf as a consequence of having this injection, and indeed have kidney problems as well. So we we said this uh, this is the main question we would like to answer. At around about this time, the... uh, or a little bit later on, it was that the company that made the new drug, Bedaquiline, came to us and sort of said, look, we haven't succeeded in getting our phase three trial sort of set up, designed and launched. Could we partner with you in a, in a second stage of stream to do that? And we were pleased about that, except that delayed the process somewhat because it did take quite a long while to put everything in place before we could start the study. But we were able to have not only the regimen which replaced the injection with an oral drug, but also a shorter regimen which was just given for six months, um, which both of these regimens having bedaquiline in them. And that stage of the study is now underway and currently we've recruited over 300 patients to the, to the second stage. That's excellent, that sounds very promising. It's interesting that the the, pre, the previous studies that you've been involved in, um, involved with have informed WHO treatment guidelines, and as I understand it, Stream Stage One has been undergoing um, and informing WHO treatment guidelines. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Well, it's a straight. It's a little bit of a um, <laughs> a mixed story, really, because in fact, in May two thousand and sixteen, which course was before we had the results of stage one which came out in the preliminary results came out in October 2017 but in May 2016 WHO made recommendations that this shorter regimen should be used or could be used as an alternative to the long regimen. This was based not on the stream results because they had no indication we didn't give them any data at this stage on, on that but it was actually based on the results coming out of Bangladesh, which the numbers had now increased to over 500 there, and additional cohorts that were being studied in other countries, mainly other African countries. And putting all those data together, they said, look, we think, in fact, this is a regimen that is worth actually um, people using more widely. They admitted that the evidence for this was weak because it wasn't based on randomised data. So at that stage, we were rather frustrated because it did actually mean that uh, people were jumping the gun before we had produced the result of the study. They were actually assuming the results of our study. Um, But, well, we had to accept that was the recommendation was made. But a consequence of that was that 
Countries like South Africa, which took on the shorter regimen, then stopped using the longer one, which we had as one of our control regimens within stage two of the study. Yes. So we could no longer do that because clearly you couldn't say to patients, you're going, you may have to have a long regimen when other, every, if you were not in the study, you would actually have a shorter regimen. So this really, to some extent, could be said to have messed up the design of stage two. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now that we have more the def- well, we're close to having the definitive results for stage one. Uh, fortunately, as far as WHO is concerned, it's actually has justified them making this recommendation because the results have shown that, in fact, the shorter regimen is as good as the longer regimen. But it could have been a very different story. Um, it really is important to have the evidence before you make recommendations. Yes, very, very well said. <laughs> so the, I guess the, so the final stream results will be presented at the Union World Conference in 2018 in the Netherlands. And so from running the STREAM clinical trial, I understand that the MRC clinical trials unit has developed good relationships and collaborations with other partners, particularly those um, working in um, under-resourced settings in Ethiopia and South Africa Mm -hmm. as such. Could you envisage a stream stage three or a stream stage four, and I mean, what I mean, what do you what, what do you think are the benefits of such a collaboration continuing on? The experience with stream is that we have been able to develop sites within certain countries where they've had very little, if any, experience previously of doing randomised clinical trials. It would be an enormous disappointment and uh, to actually sort of just to abandon them and to do nothing further. Now, it may or may not be appropriate for our team to go and do the next version of Stream, Stream 3 or Stream 4, but I certainly would hope that countries like Mongolia and the, some of the Eastern European countries that we're working, working with and Ethiopia might be able to continue to do clinical trials, uh, albeit possibly with other new different research groups in order to build on the expertise that has been developed there. As far as what is the next question to answer um, with respect to multidrug resistant TB, and of course that is the focus of STREAM, um, I think much will depend really on what the results of stage two say. We, we, we know what the results of stage one have shown, that in fact a nine-month regimen is practical, uh, but there are some disadvantages um, with respect to the problems that arise with adverse effects amongst the patients. What will happen as a consequence of stage two, we, we, shouldn't, we can't really say at this point in time, but it, it may well then lead on to sort of uh, looking for ways to simplify the treatment still further, maybe by adding in another, uh, bringing in another new drug and, redu- and taking out two or three other drugs and indeed reducing the duration to six months or who knows, even less than six months. This concludes part one of our interview with Andrew Nunn. Part two is available right now. Listen on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an MRC Clinical Trials Unit production.